Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Last week in class, we talked about the fact that we don't ever look at the other books. That we keep referring to Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, which is the five books, the prophets, and the writings, like the rest of the, it's the, et al. Um, and, and we don't ever look at those texts. And we don't study the Haftarah in here, right? The, the rabbis had this same concern. One theory of why we have a Haftarah reading, right, um, is that the rabbis had this exact concern. And their concern was, their concern was that Jews weren't anymore hearing those other texts. They were hearing a public reading of Torah, but that's it. And so all they knew was Genesis through Deuteronomy. They were losing the lessons or familiarity with the other texts. So from the verb to conclude, lifatel, from the verb lifatel to conclude comes haftal, conclusion. So it's not half Torah, right? Which is where a lot of people go. It's kind of the mini, a mini piece of Torah. Right. Right. Half Torah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Not. Wrong answer. And it is uh, from the verb to conclude, lefatel. You make that into a, what do you call it, a noun? Half Conclusion. So the rabbis gave a concluding reading. So what's, what, what's the last aliyah to the Torah called? Yes. Do you see a similarity? The concluder. The concluder, right? The maftir, the one who concludes. That that's because the aliyah refer to the person. Rishon, the per, the first aliyah, right? Rishon, Shani. Then the person who has the last aliyah is the maftir, the one who closes, the one who finishes. So. The rabbi said, okay, that's fine for Torah, but we need to we need to add a concluding text that's from the other books, and that is the Haftarah, the actual conclusion uh, of the reading for the Torah service. So so each Shabbat has a chunk of, of Haftarah that goes with it from the other books, and it's generally linked by theme. So sometimes we struggle to figure out what that theme is, like how it ties to the Torah portion, and there are lots of creative answers about how that Haftarah ties in, but generally generally it's pretty clear why that Haftarah was chosen. It circular as well, like the Torah is. We, we start over and then we end, we start over and then we end. The Haftarah is the same? Haf, no, Haftarah, yeah, the Haftarah stays wedded to the Parsha, but it's nowhere chronological. So one Samuel will be this Shabbat, and two kings will be next Shabbat, and a chunk of Ezekiel will be the next Shabbat. Because it's just chosen by how it matches up with the theme of the Parsha. So when we get the tabernacle, when we get the Mishkan, all the stuff about the Mishkan, we get Solomon building the temple. We get something from kings, right? So... um, we get something about him building the temple. Topic not time. Topic not time. Exactly. So, um, and the Haftarah is called by the Shabbat that the Parsha is. So, if we're in Yitro, it's Haftarah Yitro. Whatever, even if it comes from Jeremiah, it's called Haftarah Yitro. That chunk because it's always wedded to the Torah portion, Yitro. Okay. No extra charge for all this wonderful. <laughs> no, no extra charge. It's a holiday. It's real time. So we are in Sukkot, and um, so one of the reasons. I, so so that's what brought me to this. Like, oh, right, because on Sukkot there is a tradition on the Shabbat of Sukkot. If it's not Yuntif, every every holiday has its own Torah readings on Yuntif, right? In general. Other places, you come to synagogue on holiday morning. On Yontif morning, you come to synagogue, there's a Torah service. You jump out of the lectionary, the this, this cycle of readings. We jump out of that and insert a, a reading for Yontif. Like, we, we know what it is on Passover, right? You, know, like, you insert that instead of wherever you are in the Torah. Um, so that happens every Yontif. On Cholamoed, the days in between of the Hava festival holiday that are not Yantif, 
it's Shabbat. So you go back to your regular lectionary. You go back to the regular Torah portion for that week. On Sukkot, Cholamoit Sukkot, that Shabbos morning, it is traditional to read the book Kohelet, Kohelet Ecclesiastes. Hence, <laughs> where do you think we're going? Kohelet. We're going to Kohelet. Exactly. Per Laura Diamond's prompting, we are going to look at, instead of the Parsha, because the Parsha for today... I <laughs> like, I didn't mean to. Um, I didn't mean to. I made sure that was going to be the case. Yeah, I'm too confused. Where are all these books? That's it. Very, so careful. Careful what we say, right? Because it could go all kinds of places. Um, the So the Torah portion for this... Shabbat of Kolomoid Sukkot is always Kitisa. And this is the Parsha after the Golden Calf. We get the episode where God calls Moshe back up. God's going to forgive the people because Moshe intervenes and gets the second set of tablets. And then God, Moshe wants this moment of intimacy and says, you know, if you really love me, if you really favor me, let me see your kavod, let me see your glory. And God tucks Moshe in the rock and says all that stuff about you can't see my glory and and live and, um, and and reveals the 13 attributes of God that we chant on the high holy days. That's the Torah portion in linear order that or that's no. the one that we go back to and that's yeah, the one we go back to and 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 read on Holomoid Sukkot. But we also read that some other week of the year when in the regular down. lectionary. Right. So that yes, like double. Correct. Double so we've studied that. Yeah. So if we've been studying together for six years, we've studied that parsha twelve times. Right. Right. So we we know that parsha really well. So it was. So I thought, well, we don't know Kohelet very well. We don't know Ecclesiastes. So it's it's an opportunity to look at one of those books that you are asking about. So let's do that. So the way we're going to do that, which is also part of. The free lesson for today <laughs> is that we're gonna we're gonna not be able to use that book. How come? Because it's not in this book because it's not it's not it's not it's not that's right. What you have is the Torah. You have the t of Tanakh in front of you, right? We need the k. We need the tuvim. We need the megilot. We need the scrolls. Kohelet is one of the five scrolls. Probably you're going to need to share books. Okay, so Tanakh refers to Torah and Nevi'im and Ketuvim. All right, so to, to Laura's question, so this is how we would maybe write it in English, right? The abbreviation, this is an abbreviation. Tanakh is an abbreviation. We're sticking in vowels. Because the abbreviation stands for Torah, right? Nevi'im, which is prophets. And in Hebrew, a kaf with a dagesh is k. Without a dagesh, it's ch. Right? So ketuvim has a k, right? Ketuvim, the writings, and the, but without a dagesh, it's a ch. That's why it's called tanach. That dot's called the dagesh? Yes. And it is a grammatical thing. Sometimes certain letters, and we remember it by saying beged kefet, those letters, beged kefet, all take a dagesh at the beginning of a word or at the beginning of a closed syllable. English doesn't have that in the letters, but Spanish, for example, is the tilde. Or the accent marks in French. Correct. Right. Correct. So, um, and but there are rules about what happens. You can have a dagesh, but it drops. I mean, there's crazy, crazy stuff that happens. You, if you have a doubled letter, you add a dagesh to mean something fell. It just, uh, Rabbi Renner could probably tell you more than I could about the dagesh and its grammatical implications. I do good just to remember Begit Kefet. I've been spending more time with it more recently. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, and you did the grammar class that I didn't do, so he, he knows way more than I do about, about Hebrew grammar. So, so Tanakh, so that's what Tanakh stands for, is Torah Nevim Ketuvim. We're in Ketuvim, we're in the writings, and uh, we, as I said, this is a Megillah, this is a scroll, 
What other megalote do we know? Esther. Esther is read when? What else do we know? Echa. Which is? Lamentations. Lamentations. Any idea what holiday that's tied to? Tishabab. When the the Korban, the temple was destroyed. Our commemoration of every destruction. We talked a little bit about that this year. About crusades, about other dates that get tied to Tishabab, other events that get tied to Tishabab. What other scrolls? Ruth. Ruth. Excellent. Really, you are. Make major points I'm going to give donation to my day school. <laughs> right. You should write a check to your day school. That is a great idea. <laughs> um, but after she writes the check for the book. <laughs> Robbie Renner and I were joking the other day. That one of us said, you know, I didn't know that. Thank you, rabbinical school. <laughs> so, Ruth, what is Ruth read? Shabuot. At my conversion. At your conversion. <laughs> there you go. Excellent. So uh, Shabuot, right? So so we have um, you know dedicated readings that are tied to times, to holidays, and we are reading Kohelet, which is assigned to Sukkot. Now, it's, some of the connections are obvious. Lamentations on Tisha B'Av makes a lot of sense. Ruth, the story of a convert, makes a lot of sense. On the, the holiday, you're talking about receiving Torah, right, and accepting Torah and living into being part of the Jewish people. That, it's easy to make those connections. It's a harvest festival. It was the harvest in the story of Ruth. Right? There's lots of easy connections. I'm going to ask you to help connect. Wow. This to Sukkot, and it is not going to be at all obvious. I'm just going to, I'll be, I'm not setting you up. It is not obvious. There are lots of theories about why it's attached to Sukkot. You, um, you're going to form your own opinion and see if you agree with those or not. All right, so did we find it, please? 1765. 1765 in your Tanah. It will be next to the other Migilot. Right? It's going to be in the Ketuvi, so it's going to be. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Were these literally scrolls that were found? Is that why they're written that way? Or they, they, they wrote everything on scrolls. Okay. okay. Um, but these are. Yeah, these are self contained. As a writing. Why would they be in Ketuvim versus the writings? It is, it is in the writings. So the scrolls are part of Ketuvim because okay. um, they're not prophetic literature. Prophetic literature is its own genre, and there's early prophets and late prophets. Um, is it more like stories? I mean, is, that, is there what groups the, the writings as? It, so it's more like we have the mystery novel section and the romance novel section. You know, like it, it's it's a different genre of literature. It was an editorial choice by the people who were compiling everything. Said, this, "Well, this doesn't really fit here, and it doesn't really fit here." Right. So, because so, remember, this is all compiled by a final redactor. Um, what's interesting about our discussion this morning, you'll see, is that we're going to look at an argument in the Talmud about whether or not Kohelet should have been included in the canon, should be included in the canon. Rabbi Akiva, at Rabbi Akiva's time, they're still arguing about should Song of Songs be part of the canon. It's too sexy. It's too explicitly sexy, right? Some of those lines are shocking. If you read it as love poetry, they are shocking in how explicit they are. Um, and so a lot of rabbis argued that that, can, that cannot go in the canon. It can't. It's like it's lots of the romance novel section. Like, what, what are y'all talking about? Um, but if it gets read as a euphemism for the relationship between God and Israel, now it's sacred literature and we can change genres, right? So science fiction, right? You know, like, it's kind of like, well, is it fantasy or is it hardcore science fiction? You know, it's like there's some genres that kind of overlap. So um, the, the rabbis saw that one as, as one that could put, be put in a different category. They obviously decided to put Kohelet in here. Hmm? The only scrolls that we still use are the Torah, which we always use on a scroll, and the Megillah for uh, Purim. Because that's the only Megillah we generally read. Okay. Right? Like, if everybody were totes into this, we could get a Megillah Kohelet uh -huh. and do this every Sukkot, Cholamoed, and read that Megillah. Right? 
All right, who would like to begin reading? The words of Kohelet, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Utter futility, said Kohelet. Utter futility. All is futile. What real value is there for a man in all the gains he makes beneath the sun? One generation goes, another comes, but the earth remains the same forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and glides back to where it rises. (coughs) Southward blowing, turning northward, ever turning blows the wind. On its rounds the wind returns. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place from which they flow, the streams flow back again. All such things are wearisome. No man can ever state them. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear enough of hearing. Only that shall happen which has happened. Only that occur which has occurred. There is nothing new beneath the sun. Sometimes there is a phenomenon of which they say, look, this one is new. It occurred long since in ages that went by before us. The earlier ones are not remembered. So too those that will occur later will no more be remembered than those that will occur at the very end. I, Kohelet, was king in Jerusalem over Israel. I set my mind to study and to probe with wisdom all that happens under the sun. An unhappy business that which God gave men to be concerned with. I observed all the happenings beneath the sun, and I found that all is futile and pursuit of wind. A twisted thing that cannot be made straight, a lack that cannot be made good. I said to myself, Here I have grown richer and wiser than any that ruled before me over Jerusalem, and my mind has zealously absorbed wisdom and learning. And so I set my mind to appraise wisdom and to appraise madness and folly, and I learned that this too was pursuit of wind. For as wisdom grows, vexation grows. To increase learning is to increase heartache. Okay, chapter one. So that's an upper. <laughs> that's an upper. Usually, you see this translated, or often you see it translated in vanity. Vanity. Mm-hmm. All is vanity. Shakespeare. Yeah, most people line. think it was Shakespeare. Yeah, but it wasn't. It's it was. It, he, Shakespeare's quoting yeah. right ancient yeah. wisdom literature. Yeah. So. I, this is the words of Kohelet, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who is this attributed to? Solomon. Solomon. Exactly right. It is attributed to King Solomon. What was he known for? Wisdom. <laughs> yes and no. So, yes, but that's funny that that was everybody's like answer because some of us know him for other stuff. Hmm. He what? He had a lot of wives. He had a lot of wives. He had a lot of wisdom. Wealth. He had a lot of wisdom. <laughs> Ask someone who's married. Generally, they will say, "I have enough trouble with one." I'm just saying. Um, so the the many wives thing points to his gluttony. Samson was was a lavish spender. And he had amazing, like, think about Solomon's stables, right? He had horses from all over the world when he built the temple. It was extravagant, right? Cedars from Lebanon and, and architects from Lebanon, right? He, he broke the country. I mean, that's why, we, that's why we know this about him, those of us who study a lot about this stuff, is because Sol, it's, it, one of the theories is that Solomon's taxation of the people caused the, the, the united monarchy to be weakened, right? He just, he broke the country. He was like Louis XIV. I know not a lot about that, but he, he was like <laughs> Louis XIV. And Versailles. And Versailles, there you go. So, you know, that kind of um, conspicuous consumption. So, so now it makes some sense for you, this part of... I mean, we're going to get to a part that's more descriptive and makes even more sense. But so that it's attributed to the king who was known for being wise and who was known for an incredibly lavish, over-the-top lifestyle. No wonder nothing's ever enough for him. So, so hold those. Thank you for the bridge, Laura. Um, hold those together. So what is the connection between, right, he, the most lavish spender, and, and I'm not talking just a lavish spender. He had 
a lot and was lavish. Right? It's one thing for me to squander my money at Nordstrom's. You know, it's it's another thing if you have endless wealth and do that. So I mean, the scale at which he's he's consuming is vast. Right? And he has permission to do whatever he wants and has access and power and all of that to acquire as many wives as he wants. Right? That so the scale is just huge. Um, what is that? What does that have to do with wisdom? That that's one of the things we're going to be asking. Um, and what does all of that have to do with Sukkot? Okay. So let's look a little bit at, ch- at chapter two because I think it gives you a better sense of of why you know, h- how it's so Solomonic. I said to myself, "Come, I will treat you to merriment, taste mirth." That too, I found, was futile. Of revelry, I said, it's mad. Of merriment, what good is that? I ventured to tempt my flesh with wine and to grasp folly while letting my mind direct with wisdom to the end that I might learn which of the two was better for men to practice in their few days of life under heaven. I multiplied my possessions. I built myself houses and I planted vineyards. I laid out gardens and groves in which I planted every kind of fruit tree. I constructed pools of water, enough to irrigate a forest shooting up with trees. I bought male and female slaves and I acquired stewards. I also acquired more cattle, both herds and flocks, than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I further amassed silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces, and I got myself male and female singers, as well as the luxuries of commoners, coppers and coppers of them. Thus I gained more wealth than anyone before me in Jerusalem. In addition, my wisdom remained with me. I withheld from my eyes nothing they asked for and denied myself no enjoyment. Rather, I got enjoyment out of all my wealth. And that was all I got out of my wealth. Then my thoughts turned to all the fortune my hands had built up, to the wealth I had acquired and won. And oh, it was all futile in pursuit of wind. There was no real value under the sun. For what will the man be like who will succeed the one who was ruling over what was built up long ago? My thoughts also turned to appraising wisdom and madness and folly. I found that wisdom is superior to folly as light is superior to darkness. A wise man has his eyes in his head, whereas a fool walks in darkness. Okay, so, but I also realize, says the next line, that the same fate awaits them both. Mm-hmm. All right, so, so we go through acquiring all of this wealth. So we're going to look at this line. I withheld from my, verse 10, I withheld from my eyes nothing they asked for and denied myself no enjoyment. Rather, I got enjoyment out of all my wealth. And that was all I got out of my wealth. But, but the word here is enjoyment. He got enjoyment from amassing all of this wealth. He got enjoyment from his wealth. Sounds good. Sound, it sounds good. Okay. So I, I got all this. Look at what I got. And, and, and I, that was good. I would like that, right? Verse 11, then my thoughts turned to all the fortune my hands had built up, to the wealth I had acquired and won. And oh, it was all futile and pursuit of when there was no real value under the sun. What's happened? This is a critical pivot moment. It's not enough. So it's not enough. Say, say more about that. Well, that is a, a, there's a relationship with that and today that, that nothing is enough. Um, and that people just amass their wealth and for their own, they think for their own enjoyment. And it just doesn't work. And the wealth is empty. And the wealth is empty. They, they think it's going to get them enjoyment. He suggests here it does. It's temporary. Yes, yeah, but, it's it's empty. Empty. but at the end where he says, um, I got enjoyment out of all my wealth, and that was all I right. got out of my wealth. There was other things missing. And that we all need to shame in. So, but there's a pivot here. Right? That he sees a difference. He, you have to apprehend that there's more. And, and right. I think he had to become a certain age in order to gain the wisdom to understand that. Because when he was younger, like so many of us, we, we wanted to acquire, we needed to acquire, but now that we're older, we can look back and see what's 
Okay. Because my next question was going to be, what's the pivot? On what does that turn depend? Is it the older Solomon here looking back now saying, it just was great blood? Don't know. Now that I realize as I'm older that it isn't all there is. So that's what Paul is suggesting. Paul is suggesting it must be the older Solomon because it is a thing about age and experience. Right. That, 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 that all the enjoyment we get from those things, first of all, it's not enough. You want more enjoyment from more things. You think that's going to bring you more enjoyment if you get a bigger car, a bigger house. Um, and Paul is saying in, uh, after enough time of that, you understand, and as we get maybe closer to our own issues of mortality, we start to understand there are things way that bring way more important kinds of pleasure into our lives than material things. Like Lisa was saying, that there, there are things that are missing that, that material wealth won't provide. But isn't it incongruous to acquire all the wealth and have wisdom at the same time? Is this the pivot that he now becomes older and wiser? It, it, so, so it, but it, that's one. That's one possibility. Everyone, try to talk. Hang on. His thoughts turn, so it may also reflect time for reflection. Not necessarily. I mean, okay, good. Because I don't want to just say it's just age, right? I think there's lots of possibilities here. One is age and experience. Laura, I love it. That's another one. Another one is my thoughts turn. In order to have a revelation. One must provide oneself the time and the atmosphere and the environment to reflect. If one isn't doing that, if one is busy acquiring, right, then, then that's what one's attention is, is focused on. Then one possibly might miss the thoughts or, or ideas or, or awarenesses that arise when we're given when we turn our attention to another direction, mindfulness, when we turn it inward, right, Lisa, when we, when we turn inward. Yes. But I think at this point he goes, he goes further. It's not a simple pivot to having a more nuanced or mature view of what's gone by. He's, he's gone all the way to existential despair. He says that, yeah. he says that uh, well, yeah, being wise is probably better than being a fool. And being able to see is probably better than wandering around in the dark. But in the long run, it doesn't really make much difference. The because the, the end is the same. We all die. It doesn't matter whether we were rich or poor, seeing or non-seeing, wise or foolish. But does that conclude then that only with age do you acquire that kind of wisdom? Okay, so thank or you. Are there thank some you. younger okay. people? Thank you, because another possibility is, which is, I got it from the commentary that I'm going to share with you, is that while he was acquiring, it brought him pleasure. But once you've bought all the houses you can possibly visit in a year, and once you've had all the wives in the neighborhood that are at all interesting, and what once you've acquired it all, then what? So it's possible. It's not age. It's no, possible. Right. It's that when you are pursuing a goal, it's, it's enjoyment. Goal you, you get is. enjoyment. But then when that goal is achieved, then what? if his material yeah. wealth goals have all been met, come on. Yes, most of us never get enough. But some people get it that they have more than they can ever use or spend. And then there's a shift to, it's not a bigger house that's going to do it, it's something else, something that's missing. So possibly it's about not having a goal anymore. And it's turning your attention to the next goal, Rabbi Renner? So the other thing that's possible access with this is current events. You mentioned this before, that he broke the monarchy, essentially. Um, this is the end of the united Israelite people as a monarchy. Um, if he's seeing that coming, down the road, he sees the consequences of all of his acquisition and all of these things. I mean, he could be speaking out of current events. Nice. So consequences. That I thought it was good, and I was enjoying it. I think about the environment now. So you know what I used what I used to want when I was younger about acquisition, right? Was convenience, bigger, better, 
Um, I still want those things, right? obviously, in some ways. But now I have another goal, another desire, which is it's inconvenient for me to take my own grocery bags, but I am a vigilante about it in my house. If somebody comes in with a bag from the grocery that they didn't leave the house with, they walk into my house like this. <laughs> they do the walk of shame, because I'm going to go bananas, right? So right, my, we're looking at invitations for my daughter, and like some of them now are like hard plastic. Um, you know, at the five thousand dollar end, um, and and she's like, "Ooh!" I said, "Are you kidding me right now?" <laughs> Do you? She was like, "I know it's gonna kill the planet, right?" So, I mean, there's some things that are bigger than what we originally had as the goal, right? And that then changes the, the pivot because the consequence to the planet of my convenience is more truck is more troubling to me than the inconvenience. And that's about changing one's thoughts through consequences. George? But if you look at all that as learning, and one of the sentences in here is to increase learning is to increase heartache. So it never ends. <laughs> Thank you, George, for that uplifting <laughs> insight. Um, so what George is saying is even though you change, you know, you, you gain all this wisdom, like Richard pointed out, it, his result's going to be the same. You're still going to die. And you're saying, he's already said, when you know more, you hurt more. Yeah. Okay. I didn't say that. I, I know, I know. I, 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 I it. And a corollary to that, which I heard from a Catholic priest here when he gave a talk, was grief is the price we pay for loving. Acquisition is enjoyable, but we pay a price. So with everything that balance of we wouldn't give up loving, we'd keep doing it if we got the chance, but we know there's a consequence to it. And here there's a consequence to this acquisition, and we're going to do it, but perhaps finding our goal, what is the goal in loving? It's it's something more than acquisition. What is the, the goal here? It's empty. There's nothing there except things, and things don't do it. Love does. Beautifully said. Yeah, beautiful musing on when you were talking before, and I, I mentioned this, I guess it was last year at the time that we were talking about this same part of the color reading. Um, my younger son wanted a five-speed bicycle, and he just kept asking and asking. We finally got him a five-speed bicycle. Some of you may remember my telling this last year. And he says afterwards, the wanting is so much more fun than, than the having. Out of the mouths of babes, wanting is so much more fun than getting. And that is, he pivoted early. <laughs> is, um, can we, can we um, reframe some of what we've read up to this point as saying that this is also besides the sort of like existential aspects of it that it's it's an extended meditation on meaning and yes. finding meaning in life yeah. but I think and that's that, always you know, existential stuff is always right. about meaning right. Right? and he's searching you know he thought that the acquisition of that that Acquiring wisdom would give his life meaning. That acquiring wealth would give his life meaning. Because he's got both. He's. It's clear he's got both. He was. In, I mean, he was, he was into wise study while he was consuming. So it's not that. Oh, I need to. It wasn't possessions. It's wisdom I need to pursue. He's got both. So. And yet, at yes. the end of the and, and day, there was still no meaning. Correct. Right, it still doesn't mean anything. Laura, um, I find I'm, I'm reading this thinking. Not, oh, here's this, here's the person we deem to be wise that we're supposed to be um, finding something out of his words. But instead, I'm finding, well, he was really having a hard time, and I think that he could have used some help from other people. Like, for him, to increase learning is to increase heartache, because what he was learning was really difficult for him. He was in that moment of, like, discovering everything that I've been searching for, everything that I've been going for, all my goals were wrong. That hurt. But I think about, you know, it's, it's a glass half full, glass half empty. It's a, a different person with less or more or whatever would have the wisdom to see that the sea is full 
why is he, you know, what, it, this is his outlook, is that there's nothing new, everything's, everything I ever wanted is wrong. Should somebody else could see the same things and be writing, it's enough. I look at the sea and it's enough. Um, you know, what I've learned is making me stronger. And so it, it's like, Goldilocks so, in her story didn't have to find that something fit just right. Like, there's always somebody who's like, nothing's good, it'll never be enough, it'll never be just right for me. And there are others who find, oh, you know what? This chair, you know, I kind of like the way the plastic, I, you know, sits on my arms. Yeah, it's great. It's fine. So, so you're pointing to, so you say it was just kind of a observation. The rabbis took what you're saying and had a panic attack. Because they're like, we cannot let the Jewish people read this text. We're reading a manic depressive, cynical, you know, disillusioned. Wait, let's pick one of the ones Laura was talking about. Where, where are those? Let's get, well, get, get no. us one of those. The ocean is perfectly lovely, full. No, but I read it, but don't read it as saying, he knows he's right. Read it but, as saying, but if you're going to canonize it and not give an explanation, there's no intro. That says, right. let's be sure, people, we avoid whatever it's going to take to get us to this place, right? There's no intro. There's no footnotes. This would be presented as part of the holy writings of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people would study it as wisdom literature. What do you think the rabbis say to that? The, the rabbis who say it can't be in the canon, what do you think they're saying? Put it into a different context. Put it into a, better put it into a different context or put it into a different collection. But you cannot canonize this because the Jewish people will read this and will despair. There was a huge argument in the Talmud, exactly to your point, that you can't say this is part of the canon, but you should ignore the you should ignore it. Right. So, so we're gonna have to figure out how did the winning side? What was what was the winning side? Winning side's argument. That's your job now is to figure out. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Okay. You're not supposed to know this yet because this is. We're still in the second chapter. The winning side among the rabbis? Yes, because it's in the canon. It's in our Tanakh. So how did that happen? Laura's right. I mean, Laura was just making an observation. But they were going to put this this perspective that you, yeah. you know, I know you're saying it's just a pers it's one perspective. But if you're going to put that perspective in the holy books, you there needs to be a way that that turns out to be something instructive and inspirational and not depressing, right? Or why... Why would you put that in our sacred collection? I, I read the, these musings uh, as wisdom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a sign of wisdom that you recognize there's more meaning to life. Maybe he doesn't talk about children or a wife he loves, missing love. He's got a thousand. We have it. <laughs> <laughs> that's too many children. That's too many. Nine hundred. Nine hundred. All right. <laughs> but I, I read this is not not negative about him. He's coming. To, he's coming to wisdom. He's human. All right. So you you on the on the canonize it side. Yes. Would say this it doesn't true. all have to be happy to be true and what's wise, right? That that he's coming to wisdom and that is hard won sometimes, that it's not pretty, right? There's not fun, okay? Well, I just think that we, I don't know if it's a pattern, but we take some of our most exalted leaders and show their faults, right? Moses was faulted, Aaron was faulted, King Solomon was faulted. All right, so maybe there's a teaching here about not putting even the most powerful, popular, anybody on a pedestal. Or that if even these great people have these faults, then us lower, you know, more humble people, our faults are lesser and still can be rectified. Okay. I'm not sure it has to be in the canon, but I think it's a wonderful story. It's instructive. <clears throat> I'm a little confused. The, the interpretation is that he, he had wisdom while he was acquiring wealth, because they just don't seem to go hand in hand. He certainly had acquired wealth, and then found out, hey, it isn't what it, I thought it was cracked up to be. Mm -hmm. This is a great lesson, but I don't know what it means to be holy. You know, okay. 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 Yes. So, so you're with the, it came on the canon, it doesn't have to, yeah. Sam? Um, so, um, Solomon came by his wisdom and wealth because God said to him he would give him whatever he wanted. And what he asked for was wisdom. I think this is in Kings or Chronicles. I think it's in Kings. 
And so he asked for wisdom. And God was so impressed with that that he then also gave him wealth. But what I'm so uh, what I'm missing in here is there's nothing about God in here. It's completely godless. And so I'm also seeing that the opulence of his life is making sense to me why this is the Hafora and we're supposed to go in our humble booth and sit outside. Aha, so Pam's now connecting this to Sukkot. Because yeah. yeah. your palaces are going to bring you nothing. Yeah. So move out into the Sukkah to start putting yourself in a position to acquire some of these insights. Lovely. Lovely. Paula? I'm, I'm thinking this could be a text for a hoarding support group. A hoarding support group. <laughs> <laughs> because hoarders, hoarders get a certain amount of satisfaction and feel a certain amount of goal, goal acquisition. Well, we all do, right? But I'm, well, I'm talking about it. Uh, you're talking on the I'm mental illness side. Mental, yeah. But we all get pleasure from acquisition. And, um, and um, well, I forgot where I was going to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, quarters are not able to pivot. They're stuck. Neither are some of the 1%. Yeah, well. Neither are some people who live way beyond their means. Right? So... There's lots of people who can't stop. I, I get it that hoarding is, is to the extreme. I totally get it. I'm just saying I don't, I don't think we have to point to them in order for us to get to I, – I can relate to this. I don't know about y'all, but, like, you know, I, I love to go to TJ Maxx. You know, I'm one of the biggest Maxinistas there are, right? And, you know, the ring. The, like, it's all, like – because there's pleasure. There's pleasure for some of us in, in that kind of acquisition, right, the immediate – you know, searching and finding and acquiring. There, there's pleasure in that. That the trick is, do we pivot? Do we reach a place where, with either you know one of these that's a big one or a combination of them that finally come together in a moment of going, wait a minute, right? I've been spending too much time and attention on that, and have realized that there's something. Else, right? There, there's and what is that? That's the next question: is what is that something else? And and how do I work at achieving that? Right? That that becomes the next question because that's not obvious. Some people never get there. They never get to what the answer is, and that's where the teaching is going to come. Amy, it, but following Pam's thought, you know, if, if God gave him at the same time, there's no need for a pivot. There isn't any revelatory event that's necessary. He has the wisdom. To me, the pivot is the epiphany. Oh, my God, I spent all this time acquiring wealth, but it didn't really matter. And there is maybe where God gave him wisdom. No. So I, so, just, I, okay, just, okay, just for a second. Just for a second. So part of the question becomes, is wisdom the cause of the pivot, or, yes, yes, or is wisdom correct. irrelevant? And that could be another conversation. Elena? To me, the pivot is philanthropy. Giving some of all this that you've accumulated, sharing it around with... A pivot has to happen before you give away. Yeah, right. Because it, you have to move from acquiring being the goal. Right. So the question was, what what causes one to stop seeing gathering material wealth as the goal, as as the point? There's something happens, and it's a result of. Uh, we could go on. There might be a longer list even than this. But is it age and experience, or time and environment for reflection? You know, having goals because you've achieved these goals already. Is it you see the consequences of of consuming? Is it looking around? He, his eyes opened, and he saw all the his citizens and. So seeing what was going so on. So Nick called that consequences, yeah. right? Or you know, he, Rabbi Nick brought that up. But you know, that could it be that he looks around and sees you know the consequences of, of my not giving, giving and evil. being philanthropic? The result is I'm in seeing starving children in my right. streets. Right. So, but hardly. But a king probably has been seeing that for a while. There's something that has to happen. For the king to pass those starving people and go, wait a minute. There's been starving people in the, in the city the whole time, right? It, something has to happen for 
for us to go to empathize and then say what's more important, a bigger goal, a more important, meaningful goal that will bring real meaning to my life is to take some of what I have, a lot of what I have, and feed and clothe and educate them. So is it self-examination? So I think, I think right, when we talked about, you know, reflection. Sometimes there's a crisis. Sometimes there's a crisis, Mm -hmm. right? That's another good one. That's always, you know, that's a good, pretty good motivator, right? We don't know in this case what what the crisis is, but very possible. I just thought about our society today. A lot of times when people gain wealth, they assume they have wisdom. So they say, oh, I got my wealth because I have Because I'm so smart. Right. So I'm so smart. sounding very familiar. So I'm wondering if, if he thought that, he, he assumed that his wisdom was bringing him all this wealth. And then all of a sudden, something happened. Solomon made his will great again. He what? He made his will great again. He made his will great again. Right. So, and we saw, we see in making Israel great again, we see the results of that. Don't we? Just read your ancient Israelite history. Um, and he, he broke the country. Um, literally. All right. So, I, I just want to take us quickly through a little bit more text, and then we're going to get to the lesson. Um, It it goes on and on and on like this. So we're going to end chapter 2. So read 24, chapter 2, 24. Okay. There is nothing worthwhile for a man but to eat and drink and afford himself enjoyment with his means. And even that, I noted, comes from God. For who eats and who enjoys but himself, but myself. To the man, namely, who pleases him, he has given the wisdom and shrewdness to enjoy himself. And to him who displeases he has given the urge to gather in a mass only for handing on to one who is pleasing to God. That too is futile and pursuit of wind. Okay, so we get God. Here, we're finally getting God, but not in a great way here, right? All right, so let's let's go on because I want to get to this part for y'all. Okay, so a season is set for everything, a time for every experience under heaven, a time for being born and a time for dying. A time for planting and a time for uprooting the planted. A time for slaying and a time for healing. A time for tearing down and a time for building up. A time for weeping and a time for laughing. A time for wailing and a time for dancing. A time for throwing stones and a time for gathering stones. A time for embracing and a time for shunning embraces. A time for seeking and a time for losing. A time for keeping and a time for discarding. A time for ripping and a time for sewing. A time for silence and a time for speaking. A time for loving and a time for hating. A time for war and a time for peace. We read these at funerals, these words, as a comfort. There's a time for everything. But read the next sentence, Richard. What value, then, can the man of affairs get from what he earns? I have observed the business that God gave man to be concerned with. He brings everything to pass precisely at its time. He also puts eternity in their mind, but without man ever guessing from first to last all the things that God brings to pass. Thus I realize that the only worthwhile thing there is for them to is enjoy themselves and do what is good in their lifetime. Also that whenever a man does eat and drink and get enjoyment out of all his wealth, it is a gift of God. Okay. So those words that we read as comfort in this context are, are not words of solace, in a way. Like, it, it all is going to come, and it's all going to go, and it's all going to pass, it's all going to be the same as everything else. But we're starting to see a shift in terms of what is real enjoyment? It's not the drinking and the eating. It's realizing it is a gift from God. That's new. Right? That's different. Is that... that it isn't that there's no, I ate and drank and had it all, and so now I realize there is no pleasure in eating and drinking. That's not, that's not the insight. The insight is eating and drinking can themselves be wonderfully pleasurable, even maybe meaningful, if they're understood as being a gift from God. And we feel the gratitude. And we feel gratitude. Because that becomes the higher meaningful Peace is that I'm grateful for what I have. That is nourishing. That brings true happiness, right? Because have you ever seen the movie Happy? If you haven't seen it, you must see it. You must Mm -hmm. see it. 
it's the song that went with it. Cause I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah, that, that song. So it's that this movie is a documentary on happiness. It is prof. It, it was really, really profound for me um, because it opens with a rickshaw. Uh, driver, you know, so he's carrying the rickshaw. It's in the most poverty-stricken part of, like, India or something. It's a documentary. It's a documentary. Yeah, it's so someplace in India or whatever, and he's running, you know, and it's he's running through the water, you know, and puddles and mud and um, and it's just the worst thing you can imagine. The, like the worst possible job in the worst possible neighborhood, and he pulls this rickshaw up to his home, you know, which is some tin. You know, and and then cardboard, and then cardboard, and whatever, and a platform. You know, they somehow managed to raise a, a platform in there, so it's a split level <laughs> shack. And he lives there with his wife and children. And he and he pulls his rickshaw up, and you're just thinking, I don't even want to see the children, right? You're just thinking, this is the most horrible, horrible life anyone could have. And he puts the rickshaw down, and he's beaming from ear to ear because his son is sitting outside the shack waiting for him. Mm -hmm. And the man said, is there anything greater than this? I'm a wealthy man. I have my home and I have my son waiting to greet me at, at the end of the day. And it's like, I'm sorry that I went off on a tangent, but for me, that's this moment. That's what this means. That it doesn't mean, it just isn't about what you eat or what you drink or how much you eat or how much you drink or how much you have, or how big the house is, his shack that is swamped when the monsoons come. Swamped. He's, it's his palace. And he means it. Like, you can tell this is a man who's happy in a way that we are not. We anxious, stressed out, lonely, depressed, cynical Americans do not feel that kind of happiness, most of us. One of the greatest joys I've ever felt was being in India and watching a man walking down the street with no shoes on, rags, and he had his son on his shoulders, also no shoes, and a little pair of underpants, <laughs> singing with a big smile on his face. And actually, the religion that he partakes of, Hinduism, encourages that feeling because you are in a status of life, depending on how grateful you are and the deeds you performed in the previous state. So you improve that with gratitude and action. And you can improve it in one lifetime, of course. But and that, and that makes the joy. joy of all the physical things you do have real and con contributing to a real, true, meaningful yeah. happiness. When people say they can't go to India because they can't bear the poverty, they can look around the room where they are and see the poverty. And you don't see it as much in India. Because there's material poverty, and then there's, there's spiritual poverty. Right, absolutely. And that is, I think that is part of the major turn and lesson right here. So we're going to go to where it's a little more explicitly stated. Um, go to, we're going to go to the end. We're skipping, skipping to the end. So go to chapter 12, okay. verse 12. Refer the word. Yeah, twelve, twelve. Yeah, go go to twelve nine. Twelve nine. Okay. A further word. Because Kohelet was a sage, he continued to instruct the people. He listened to and tested the soundness of many maxims. Kohelet sought to discover useful sayings and recorded genuinely truthful sayings. The sayings of the wise are like goads, like nails fixed in prodding sticks. They were given by one shepherd. A further word. Against them, my son, be warned. The making of many books is without limit, and much study is a wearying of the flesh. The sum of the matter, when all is said and done, revere God and observe his commandments. For this applies to all mankind, that God will call every creature to account for everything unknown, be it good or bad. Okay. So, so that's where Kohelet ends. So the rabbis who argued on the side of including Kohelet in the canon um, says that, that it ends with blessing. It ends with true wisdom, the real insight that 
even wisdom is a is a it's wearying. It's you know it, it didn't fix it. His wisdom that he had the whole time he was acquiring wealth didn't didn't lend him the insight. What did in his case right is it? It's all about God. It's about serving God, and that and gratitude. So gratitude that this is a gift from God. What I have and. You know, revering God and being a person who's in awe of God and following God's commandments. So this is what Judith was talking about, right? That my actions, when they are in line with godliness, is how I might say it as a Reconstructionist. Um, when my actions line up with godliness, that I create meaning in my life, and I create real joy, and I create real pleasure, and I create a lasting sense of. Of, of good things, you know, in, in my life, because because I'm doing good things, right? And even if things are hard, and even if things are bad, and even if things are God forbid tragic, and even if you fail, and even if you fail, the fact that you're you know engaged that way, uh, right, allows us to hold those things differently and in a way that can be growthful. Take two sheets. You should have two sheets. So, Sukkot is a joyful festival. How the heck do we defend reading Kohelet on Sukkot? Some people say it's a total, even getting to the end, there's not a lot at the end, right? There's a couple of sentences, right? I mean, the point is there. What, you know, but there's what, a, what a downer for a festival. What are you, tell it's me what balance. you think. You've said it already, that our joy comes from God, and it doesn't come from acquiring wealth or even knowledge in and of itself. It won't bring you fulfillment. So we have to humble ourselves and get back to the simple things like nature and God and, you know, being with our loved ones. That's that's the stuff. And so you think that's enough? Yeah. Okay. But when, but when, uh, but when we have our little shelters for Sukkot, to build the shelters outside and everything, isn't it also besides being with your family? It's also about being with everyone else in the community that that you're sharing this experience with, and you find meaning in life through your relationships, not only with your family but also with your neighbors. It's all we create meaning with how we behave with others, and in in so in. Sukkot, because the because the shelter is almost by design flimsy and temporary. It's kind of all about well, you know, what you've actually built doesn't matter. It's the fact that you're in community with others that ultimately gives your life meaning. So, so I would say yes and yes, right? So go back to to nature, be out in what you've built that's vulnerable through which you can see the sky, or you're with your loved ones, and everyone else is outside their homes doing the same thing. And so all of you are outside together, which is to mimic what happened in the desert when y'all didn't have your big fancy mansions in the Palisades, and you weren't all locked up in front of your TVs, right? Um, you You were outside in the desert with me, says God. Therefore, once a year... You need to come out of your mansions, and you need to get out of your cars, and you need to turn off the television, and you need to all be outside together and doing this, you know, other stuff of import and reconnecting to that. Paul, I, I have to share. I I participated yesterday in a very joyful experience. I went to a Sukkot party for Holocaust survivors, and it was so much fun. And there were people there I hadn't seen for a few years. They had a klezma band, which was fantastic. People got up and danced as they could. And it just—it was wonderful. And that, that happened yesterday, and we should all know that it was one of the most pleasurable, fun things because people who have been through what they have been through know better than anybody what makes life truly worth living and what doesn't because when it's all stripped away you either lean into meaning 
or you lean into what Kohela does for most of the book. It doesn't matter if I was a good person. It doesn't matter if I was wealthy. I'm an Auschwitz just like everybody else. It none of it matters. It's all random. It's all horrible. The end is all the same. Right? You can go there and stay there, or you can come out somebody who wants to code is ready to dance like nobody's business right? to a klezmer band, and that's kind of... That's part of his point. There's a commentary. If you haven't looked at my, um, if you weren't with us and didn't hear my Yom Kippur Day sermon, this I think this ties into the message of that sermon. Um, because his commentator is saying, rather than a message of futility, Kohelet reads as a message of hope. Even if we cannot make sense of life in some grand cosmic sense, we can find purpose and satisfaction in the tasks of daily life. We can create, we can share, we can heal, and we can love. Maybe it's not all that we would like for as long as we would like, but God provides us with a time for every experience under heaven, right? Which is a, a beautiful way of saying, yeah, it is all crazy, and it is kind of random, and we can't determine what's going to happen, but but that doesn't have that doesn't have to be a downer. That, as Laura was saying earlier, if we shift our perspective, it's like, so what is meaningful, right? And there is lots... That's meaningful. I, I think that though that we shouldn't necessarily say look at the optics of what we do during Sukkot as uh, as an implicit uh, denigration of wealth as a concept. I think one of the things that Solomon learned was that wealth is particularly difficult because wealth creates its own trap. You can get trapped by all the wealth. That doesn't mean the wealth itself is bad. Right, and it, no one's saying that. Right. I was not suggesting. No, no, that. I know. Yeah. but, but the, in terms we of we do it one week. We do it one week out of the rest. No, no, Nobody's saying we'll live in shacks. Right, to but, be happy. Right, but it's sort of like you know, go back to what you did in the desert and like look how cool everything was in the desert when you know basically there was no wealth and we didn't have to worry about wealth and things like that. And it's it's probably more like as a you know. Remind yourselves of course. that. Of course, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. All right, take your handouts and go to your second page. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go to the back of the first page. Thank you. My brain was not. Computing. Thank you. The back of your first page. But if we ask ourselves, the, the goal and its attainment. Okay. Okay. Got it. Go to the go to the middle paragraph. We learned from this. We learned from this that someone who lacks a goal and meaning in life essentially lacks everything, despite all he or she might have. The unattained goal, the striving towards a five-speed bike. <laughs> or a specific purpose, is what gives flavor to what we do in life. But once the goal is achieved, especially a material goal, no zest remains to what has been achieved unless one has a more sublime goal. Drop down to the paragraph Kohelet. Kohelet answers from the heights of his experience, right? Um, and the end of that paragraph. In other words, the sublime objective is found in wisdom and knowledge which lead to true spiritual happiness, whereas fulfilling material aspirations uh, to gather and amass all that one can is the root of evil, the essence of sin and despair. Focusing on the acquisition only, always, right, is going to lead to this. This author is saying something that's really not good. Daniel Shmueli is suggesting that, um, and this is translated from the Hebrew. So whenever you're reading a translation, you, you give yourself some wiggle room around what the words actually mean, because it's not his words; it's a translator's words. Um, go to your go to the back of the sec the front of the second page mm -hmm. to the paragraph that begins quite simply. Mm -hmm. Kohelet, the festival of Sukkot, right? Why is sadness coupled with joy? Why are we reading something sad or you know pervasively sad anyway um, on this festival? Quite simply, it can be said, and this is my Yom Kippur Day sermon. That is life. Life is not all joy. It is also sorrow. Someone who has not known sadness perhaps will not know how to be happy. But even a person who experiences sorrow should understand that this is part of life. The person should probe his or her sorrow while doing soul reckoning as Kohelet did and thus come to true happiness. 
Sadness is thus a means and part of the process of building human happiness and joy. Sorrow is designed to stimulate probing and seeking that ultimately leads to discovering the truth. And in this discovery is infinite and true joy. So that's not an easy statement. If we'd read it earlier, we'd unpack that a lot more um, to see what you think about that. I think it's absolutely poignantly true. It's not easy. It's not how I would choose to do it. Um, if I designed the whole business, I would not make sadness the probing. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. That's what I would discuss with you. But, um, but to think, you know, that, that can we approach our own tragedies and our own losses and our own failures and our own sadness? That's the part of Yom Kippur, I think, that ties this to Kohelet and to Sukkot, right? Is looking at our failings, looking at the brokenness, looking at the ways we have failed, looking at the ways we've fallen short can be an opportunity, should be an opportunity to lead us to the probing that brings us true joy. And be grateful when we get a harvest. And be grateful when the harvest is good. All right, so I leave you uh, with this. May we each give ourselves the time and, and environment and ways uh, that lead us to reflection that may we see the consequences, may we see crisis as an opportunity, and may we allow our sadness to move us and our own brokenness to move us to a place where we are better able to, to have the capacity to truly experience life-giving joy. Shabbat Shalom and Chag Sameach. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.